This is dinner at Matthew's house, and it's guaranteed to be a crazy night. Jesus invites himself over to this guy, Matthew's house. And Matthew is a sinner, he's a tax collector, and he is hated among the Jewish people. He is not a good character. And Jesus is walking along and sees Matthew just sitting at his toll booth, collecting the taxes from the Jewish people. And it's unclear whether Jesus speaks, follow me, as an invitation or a command. It's unclear whether he decides to do it or whether Jesus comes by and says, you must do this now. But in doing so, he responds to what Jesus says. I've called you to be mine. I've called you to follow me. I've called you to come into my presence. And you know what? I'm going to eat dinner at your house tonight. This is a famous dinner story. Another famous dinner story is Zacchaeus. As Jesus was walking along, he sees Zacchaeus, another tax collector. Jesus had a habit of hanging out with people who were sinners. Jesus had a habit of calling people to follow him who no one else wanted to regard as worthy. Jesus had this nasty habit of showing up at people's houses who did not deserve to have dinner with. It's unclear whether Matthew finds his socially unsavory work to be personally satisfying or merely just necessary for the maintenance of his family. But regardless of that, Matthew's new life is but hours old when he finds himself at a dinner for social and moral outcasts. And here he is just going around with the people who are there with him, the people that he might have called by name, the people that he knew, the people that he worked with. And now he was being honored by Jesus' presence. He was called out of all of those people. And Jesus said, come and follow me. Now, what we need to understand about dinner in first century Jewish world is that dinner was a religious event. It was not just a meal for one another. It was just not a party, a celebration. It was a religious event because God's name, Yahweh, was invoked at the beginning of the meal. God was asked to enter into the space. His presence was there among the food. When we broke bread, we were sharing the generosity of God with all of those people around the table. And in so invoking God's name into our worship, into our dinner, the table then becomes a sacred place. The table becomes a sacred place like the temple becomes a sacred place. That when we gather, we gather in the presence of God. The very body of God there. Bread was only shared with people who were considered worthy of hospitality, who were considered worthy of the invitation. Jesus has this nasty habit of violating the sacredness of the temple, the sacredness of the religious rites, violating the sacredness of the table by fraternizing with sinners and people who were inferior. But see, how we interpret this story, and in fact, how we interpret all of the scriptures, depends on where 
we're seated. Because as people who look back at this story and look at what Jesus is doing, we think that we are those who have been invited by Christ to come and sit at the table. That we are there just feeling the burdens of society, the oppression of the people around us, the outcasts. And so we interpret this story in one way and think, man, God is so good to me because he has invited me in and I am so precious in his sight and so worthy when so many other people have called me unworthy. But I think the reality of this story is that we are those on the outside looking in and saying, what are you doing with those people? How dare you share such a sacred right with people who do not deserve it? People who should not be there. People who we have deemed unworthy in society. Jesus' response to the Pharisees prioritizes his call to sinners over the righteous because the righteous do not understand themselves to be in need. God doesn't want you at the table if you do not have need for food. God does not want you at the table if you have found yourself to be righteous already. Our words and our actions stick us on the outside, looking in to the room where Jesus has invited his closest people. And he says, you know what? The kingdom of heaven is open to these people who you have turned away. The people that will enter into the kingdom of heaven first are the tax collectors. They're the prostitutes. They're the people that you have turned away at the temple doors. And I'm going to go inside their house and I'm going to eat with them. And I'm going to invite more and more and more. And my presence in that house with Matthew and his friends are going to start something. Something more than what the temple could start. Something more that we can get behind in just reading scriptures and saying prayers over people and saying, you know what? I hope that you get through your bad times. I'll pray for you. Does Jesus offer any call to those who deem themselves righteous? Might it be that sinners recognize their own need while those who see themselves as righteous are just too full of pride to comprehend their need for God's grateful and graceful mercy. Perhaps we could even say that it's dangerous to feel too healthy. Jesus' call is extended to all, irrespective of their past, emphasizing the inclusive nature of his love and grace. And so, we're called this morning as a church to answer these questions. How can we break bread with those who are offensive to us? How can we dine in the presence of people who we find morally repugnant? How can we invite people into this church who do not fit our ideals? How can we invite someone to come to our house and dine with us, this house here, and worship with us if they don't first fit the mold of righteousness that we've cast on them? 
You see, how we interpret this story depends on where we're seated. It depends on whether we're too healthy to accept grace. Loving our loved ones is not good enough. Loving the people that look like us and act like us and think like us, that's not enough because even the tax collectors love their own. So as we love one another in the church, that's great. We're called to do that, but anyone can do that. Anyone can love someone who's like them. Now, soccer season for the Bombers was starting once again. As first practice began on a cool summer day, an odd incident occurred during a scrimmage game, the white shirts versus the blue shirts. And as they began, an olive-skinned light boy who spoke no English wandered from the playground equipment over to the sidelines of the game. He watched and he waited, and moments later, the parents looked for him again, but he was gone. Then they noticed there were now 13 bombers running up and down the field, the boy perfectly camouflaged in blue shorts and a white t-shirt. He had joined the the white team. He ran, he passed, he kicked, he smiled. No one seemed to notice that he wasn't a part of the team. No one said, he hasn't paid the fees, he doesn't have the proper forms, and the release work hasn't been signed. Soon, however, the the ball rolled into a mother's lap, and as the new boy ran to fetch it, the mom innocently said to the coach, he's not on the team. The kids, who had not even noticed that a new friend was on the field, they stopped. The coach looked down at the very dirty boy, saying, he's not, hmm. And there was a pause as the boy looked up at the coach who held his soccer fate. Finally, he put his hand on the boy's small back and said, come on, let's play soccer. And off all 13 bombers ran. None of us deserve to be on God's team. We haven't earned it, nor have we paid the price ourselves. Yet, in his grace, God chooses us to be on the best team in existence. Someone Jesus loves is a tax collector. Maybe we can't identify with that, so maybe we can identify with this. Someone Jesus loves has AIDS. Someone Jesus loves is gay. Someone Jesus loves is transgender. The team's not perfect. It's not. And when we ask people to become perfect before they're welcomed into the house, when we ask people to become righteous before they sit down at dinner, wash your hands in this way, read the scriptures in this way, we've turned into the Pharisees standing on the outside looking in. And so we move now to a little interlude. That someone comes to Jesus while he's there at dinner. Don't interrupt the rabbi. Don't interrupt the teacher. He's with his students now. 
let alone this unclean woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And when you bleed, you cannot enter the temple. So this woman who is a Jew, who longs to be with her people, who longs to be in the presence of her God, who longs to be there at the feet of her teacher, cannot be there. Because someone somewhere has stripped her of her identity and said, you are not welcome because you are an unclean person. We don't want you. This woman had been suffering for 12 long years and simply says to herself, if I can touch his clothing, if only I could touch his clothing, then I will be healed. The woman reaches out and touches a symbol of God's covenant and of Jesus' position as the bearer of that tradition, touching the hem of his garment where the little fringes would hang down, reminding Jewish leaders of the laws, all 600 plus of them, around the edge of the cloak. And this unclean woman, in her arrogance, comes and reaches out and touches those very covenant promises that God has said. I like to picture that she's touching the very law represented in his hem that says she's an unclean person. It's like getting a tattoo of the verse that says don't get tattoos. We look at this and say, welcome to Christianity. It is messy. But Jesus has shaken things up. Jesus' response to the woman is breathtaking and theologically meaningful. He tells her that what has made her well is her faith. That's a little unexpected for us. Because we want Jesus to heal her. Jesus is the miracle worker. Jesus is the one who brings people back from the dead. But Jesus doesn't look down and say and says to her, you have been healed by me. Thank you for touching the hem on my garment. I will heal you now. It does happen sometimes that way. But in this story, Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Jesus does not claim to have done anything to have made her well, nor does he require anything of the woman. He acknowledges that her faith is the agency of her healing. Jesus presents himself not only as a healer who goes looking for sinners in spiritual need, but also as the one to whom those with physical problems can turn. See, Jesus' ministry is marked by both urgency and accessibility. It's both, I have to go out and seek people like Matthew, but also I want people to come to me. And when we are people of God, when we have entered into the kingdom, when we have new life in Christ, we live with both an urgency to tell and to spread and both an accessibility to say, welcome to my home. Enjoy the meal. I've baked brownies. When we are people of Christ, we have this same posture that he goes and seeks, but yet people still come to him. Both those who are outcasts and those who are part of the social establishment find in Jesus a compassionate heart. 
Compassion and action, we might even call that hospitality. We might say, how good of a host are you? How welcoming are you to bring people into your life and the life of Jesus? And so both those with acute needs and those with chronic pain find healing power. Both those who reach out and those who need to be beckoned find attentive aid. And so faith doesn't turn into this mind game. It doesn't turn into this thing that we have. It turns into action. It turns into a doing. Faith is this needing touch, reaching with expectancy that invariably finds Jesus reaching back in response. That when people reach to us, how do we reach back to them? That faith is an action of reaching and reaching and reaching and knowing in expectation that you will hear you will be known and for a person who didn't have an identity, for a person who was stripped of all that livelihood, Jesus will look at you and call you daughter, will call you son, will welcome you into the room and say, you are now God's family. You have a place here amongst us. A theme that runs throughout this chapter is that of a controversy around who is inside or outside, sick or well. The scribes, the Pharisees, the disciples of John, they all question Jesus and he shows himself superior to their knowledge and authority each and every time. I know more than you about this situation. I know more about God and I know more about who he wants in his kingdom. I know more about his kingdom because I was the one to sent to bring it forward to you. And we can guess all we want at it. We can decide for ourselves whether this person or that person is sick or well or in or out or going or coming. But the truth is this. Christ calls people. He calls them all. He calls everyone into the kingdom. And he calls sinners. He calls people that are sick because it's not a healthy person who needs a doctor. Those people can take care of themselves and they have taken care of themselves. Picture it like this, a busy doctor in the middle of a hectic day, yet when an elderly woman comes in with a minor but distressing symptom, the doctor takes the time to listen to her, empathize with her, and treat her with kindness and respect. This mirrors the compassion Jesus shows when despite being on his way to attend to a dying girl, literally doing something else that's got his attention, he still takes the time to acknowledge and heal the bleeding woman. It shows that every individual matters to him. Someone Jesus loves has been bleeding for 12 years. Someone Jesus loves is a leper. Someone Jesus loves is unclean. Someone Jesus loves is a sinner. And so we come to the final conclusion of Matthew's dinner party. It's been a good one so far. The synagogue leader comes to Jesus and he kneels before him, showing he's inferior, showing his respect for who Jesus is, 
I come and kneel before you as a sign of respect. Come and heal my daughter. She has died. Nearly half of all children during Jesus' day died before they reached the age of five. This was not an unusual thing to happen. In fact, those, that group of mourners that Jesus sees when they get to the synagogue leader's house, they are professional mourners whose job it was to go to house, to house, to house, and lay and wake, which is what awake means, to try and wake the dead. We play loud music, we sing songs, because we're trying to rouse the people who might just be asleep. And so these mourners, they've seen it all. They've been to houses before. We're playing our pipes, we're singing our songs, we're doing our dances, we're shaking our tambourines. She's not asleep, Jesus. Why would you say that? Jesus walks in the house and says, I know more than you do. Someone that Jesus loves is a synagogue leader. Someone that Jesus loves is a dead girl on a bed who's not dead, just asleep. And that's funny to them because we know more than you, Jesus. We're professional mourners. We've come and played at so many houses. We know dead from asleep. And Jesus says, you don't know what I know. You don't know who I know. You don't know the power of the kingdom. And it's noticeable that Jesus does not claim any great power in doing this. Instead, maintaining that the girl is merely asleep. And it seems as though it is the faith of the Father that is the agency that leads to the daughter's restoration. Jesus heals, but in both of these cases, it was their faith that healed the unclean woman. It was the faith of the synagogue leader bowing at Jesus' feet that brings his daughter back to life. In all of these possibilities, when Jesus works his miracles, we expect to see broader social boundaries crossed from clean to unclean, from enemy to friend, from lost to restored, from death to life, breaking through relational and social categories, Jesus challenges how we stigmatize others, how our categories limit our own possibilities for a surprisingly new life. Three very different people from very different social and religious positions have faith that Jesus is able to touch their unique needs for healing. And what does it lead to? What does it take? What is that faith, that mourning, yet faith brings us into this great joy, this great saving love? The joy offered by Jesus is not Pollyannish. Make the best of things and be thankful for each new day. That sort of joy is shallow and weak. It's not a joy that ignores the grinding structures of our world that elevate and enrich some while turning others into dust. It is a form of joy that is possible only when we face the truth of pain and brokenness. The universal feeling in the world is pain and brokenness. And so this morning, bad news is good news in this gospel. 
Oh, we sang it this morning. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father is so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. You see, the bad news is that we are all sinners and we are all sick. Jesus bursts like fireworks into the very center of this bad news. He eats with tax collectors and shows up for those who need him. And all of us need him. He shows up for all of us. He comes not for the righteous, but for the sinners. He beckons us, all of us, to glance up from our tiny tax booths, from our cubicles, from our immeasurable suffering and exhaustion, even our piercing, life-shattering grief to follow him. My friend Alex and his son Santiago were playing in the ocean down in Panama while his family, his wife and daughter, his parents and his cousin were on the beach. And suddenly out of nowhere, this incredibly strong riptide swept little Santi out to the sea. And so immediately Alex does what any good father does. He goes and he runs out to Santiago who's struggling in the sea. He wants to do everything that he can to help. He knew that in a few minutes, both he and Santiago would have a problem though because he was swept away in that riptide as well. He tried to scream, but his family could not hear him. Now, Alex is a strong guy. He's a triathlete, but he was powerless in this situation. When you get into a rip current, they will pull you out to sea and you will drown by exhaustion. It was as he was carried along by that water, he told me he had one single chilling thought, that he, that his wife and daughters were going to have to have a double funeral. Meanwhile, his cousin, who understood a little bit about the ocean, saw what was happening. He walked out into the water where he knew there was a sandbar and he had learned that if you try and fight a riptide, you will die. So he walked to the stand, sandbar and stood as close as he could to Alex and Santiago. And he just lifted his hands up and he said, you come to me. You come to me. If you go the way that your gut tells you to go, the shortest distance to the shore, you will die. If you think for yourself, you will die. God said, if you come to me, you will live. That's it. Death or life. The calling on our life, the collective calling that we have to move from here to there, to invite those from there into here, is a matter of death and life. To find what we have lost means that we come to church right we come to it more fully ourselves, come with more of our humanness showing than we are apt to come to most places. We come like Abraham with muck on our shoes, foot sore and travel stained with the dust of our lives upon us, our failures, our deceits, our hypocrisies. Like Abraham, we come here as we are. And like him, we come as strangers and exiles in our way 
because wherever it is that we truly belong, whatever it is that is truly home for us, we know in our hearts that we have somehow lost it and gotten lost. Something is missing from our lives that we cannot even name. Something we know best from the empty place inside us where it belongs. We come here to find what we have lost. We come here to acknowledge that in terms of the best we could be is lost. And that we are helpless to save ourselves. Listen in Romans 4 to what Paul writes. He says this, So the promise is received by faith. Faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the laws of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happens because Abraham believed in the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken. Even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. See, it was his faith that made him righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit, too reassuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. As we go now into communion, I invite you to dwell on those thoughts that our faith has made us righteous that as we come together in union with each other, with Christ, with God and his presence, know that the body and the blood that we share around the table, this sacred time, this sacred space, this sacred moment, is an invitation to everyone that the table is open, not for people who have gotten their lives together, not people who have already been made righteous and healed themselves, but by people who have been called by Jesus.